Welcome to the Contrast Church Podcast. Contrast is located in Grandview, Ohio, with the mission to help people be with Jesus, become like Him, and live out His mission together. For more information on attending our meetings, our missional communities, or giving, visit contrast.church. Well, if you haven't turned in your Bible, John 1 is where we're going to be. This is our third week of the series of John, and uh, we are going to spend the next several months in John. If you've been a part of us for a couple years, uh, we are church plant, and we started during COVID, which is a great time to start a church, and uh, we went through the book of Matthew for almost two years, and so we went through every verse and taught that all, and it was a great time, and so now uh, we're teaching the fourth gospel, the gospel of John, and kind of the unique components of John that would give us a holistic uh, understanding and account of Jesus, because Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the first three Gospels are what we call the synoptic Gospels. They share a lot of the same stories and writings and manuscripts, have a lot of similarities, whereas John is just sort of out in left field picking flowers. So uh, he is like writing completely differently, and we want to uh, be able to focus on some of the unique things about that. So week three is where we're at. We're still in chapter one, but we're transitioning from what would uh, be called by scholars the prologue, which is like the fancy introduction to John. We're getting into kind of the meat and um, potatoes of what John wants us to see chronologically. Before that, it was more zoomed out, more like a big picture. I mean, it starts the book in the beginning, and so John is trying to bring back any Jewish listener at this time uh, to, to remind themselves of the beginning in which God created, and in that creation was the logos, the voice of God, the audible voice of God, and he was there since the beginning, and all things have been created through him, and we know that voice, the word, to be Jesus. And so as we learn now, uh, this rabbi named Jesus in his story, we will start to unfold uh, what is today is just the followers and disciples of Jesus, and I think today is going to be pretty awesome for some of us to just learn what it means and uh, how it looked for these followers. So uh, we read a lot of scripture. We're not going to cover all of it um, because we've talked a lot about John the Baptist, and I'll talk a little bit about him again today. Um, but for those of you who are wondering, the Gospel of John is not written by John the Baptist, different guy. The Gospel of John is written by John, son of Zebedee which is one of the 12 disciples. He never refers to himself in this book explicitly. He kind of puts like undertones of himself in there, like humble brags, but he never says, like, this was me, I was there. Uh, partially for a credit thing and the timing of when he wrote it, most likely. Um, but he's writing, and he says in chapter 20, verse 31, uh, so that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ, and that in his belief in his name that we might have life and uh, that we might have life to the fullest. And so that's the point of John, and I hope that you'll see that throughout the weeks as we spend time in it, whether you're here or you're leaving or you're sticking around. We'd love for you to follow along with us in this. So I want to jump into just verse 29 right away uh, and move through this, and then there's one little passage of this I want to focus on for most of today. So verse 29, it says, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one about whom I said... After me comes a man who is greater than I am because he existed before me, which, like I said, is an echo to the beginning. The word was with God from the beginning. Uh, he said, I did not recognize him, but I came baptizing with water so that he could be revealed to Israel. So John the Baptist is this forerunner. He's starting to get people ready for Jesus. Then John testifies, I saw the spirit ascending like a dove. If you wonder what the photos are there for, that's, that's the idea of the dove. The spirit coming upon Jesus from heaven and resting upon him. And in verse uh, the end of verse 33, this is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. I have both seen and testified that this man is the chosen one of God. 
And then it says in verse 35, again, the next day John was standing there with two of his disciples and gazing at Jesus as he walked by, he said, look, the Lamb of God. And when John's two disciples heard him say this, they followed him. Now, this, this, is, um, this, is a, this week in Scripture is the first chapter and a half of John uh, up to the wedding of Cana, which we'll talk about next week. Uh, but this would be like what I would consider like OSU's welcome week, where you come to school, you're like, I have no friends. What's my point here? Do I really want to do this major? And then uh, you like do stuff like every day with people, and you're just trying to, you know, those introverts are like, dear Lord, this is a lot. But you're like trying to make friends and trying to figure out, you, you maybe you're trying to put your new best foot forward, and you're like, I'm going to be cool now, right, or whatever. And you make all these friends, and you figure out like how you want to start the trajectory of your next four years, or maybe five, you took a slower time, right? Uh, but you do that, and this is kind of what's happening with the disciples. I grew up in the church learning um, and this wasn't, this wasn't explicitly taught. It was just kind of implicit in the way I learned it. It was like, I just sort of assumed that when Jesus came to these disciples, that he just came out of nowhere and like appeared. And they're like, who is this guy? I'll follow him. And they just like lay down their nets. And they're like, let's do it. Give up my life for it, right? And we sort of spiritualize that, that interaction as though they had never heard of Jesus and never saw him before. And I'm here to tell you that it's not really very true, especially if you've been reading the other Gospels, stories of what we call calling the disciples. Because if you remember some of the other ones, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, uh, they have these moments where they're like fishing and they drop their nets. And Jesus is like, follow me. And they're like, and he's like, I'll make you fishers of men, right? This doesn't seem like that at all. It seems like he's just walking around and just picking people wherever they're at. And, uh, and then they're telling other people to come follow him. It doesn't seem as, as monumentous as this like lakeside moment. And so what's going on here? Why are these stories so conflicting? And what I want to communicate today is this, this is more of a week that's occurring. There's several days that are happening here that give us sort of two components of the following. What I mean by that is uh, it's very, very, very probable that most of the disciples, if not all of them, knew Jesus before this moment. I say that because of several reasons. One is the area in the region that they're in right now is maybe 30 to 100,000 people at this time. Uh, and that's not that many people. I mean, it's, it's a lot of people, but it's not like one point million, you know, whatever million. And if you're in, you know, like Lancaster's like 50,000 or 60,000, and you're a really good carpenter, people are going to know you in Lancaster, right? And I imagine Jesus was pretty good, right? I mean, come on, he's Jesus. He's not going to make crappy doors. He's going to make the best doors, right? Um, and they also, you know, whether or not, a lot of people argue that Joseph, or Joseph Jesus' dad, died early because he's not going to be at this wedding, which he would have definitely been at. Uh, so Jesus maybe took over. But either way, he's known as a carpenter in this small area. He's also a rule-abiding, law-following Jewish citizen. So he's going to synagogue all the time, and the synagogue culture was pretty small, uh, and lived there for 30 years, we know, you know, at least 30 years. So it's very, very unlikely that this man Jesus comes into this town and no one knows who he is. Very unlikely. What they're dealing with is, this guy, I know this guy. Like, this isn't, this isn't the Messiah. He's just like a dude who makes doors. Like, there's no way that this is him, Right? And that's why a lot of them, when he goes to his hometown, Nazareth, which is even a smaller town of the region, they're like, I knew Joseph. Like, this is not the Messiah. That's why they couldn't believe. They, they couldn't believe that this normal person could be the Messiah. But what we find even more, I think, comforting is because a lot of these disciples knew him, in fact, some of them arguably were cousins of him, they knew him to the point where they knew him, and then they knew all the law and the Old Testament and the prophecies. I mean, these guys are really well-educated, even though they're only teenagers, right? They're like 14 to 18, I think. Uh, they, they know the law really well, and they know the prophecies, and they know what the Messiah should look like. And so the fact that they do eventually give everything up to follow this guy gives you a very strong understanding that these guys 
thought he could be the real deal. The problem with them is that when they follow him, they have a very specific trajectory for what they think the Messiah will do. They think that he will become king by force, right? They think that he will, over, he will usurp Rome and all the subjugation they've been putting on Jerusalem. They think that he will shut up the Pharisees and the religious leaders and make true freedom through his leadership and that they will get to be, you know, components of that and uh, have high status. And what does Jesus do? He's like, nope, we're going we're gonna to do this through service and love, loving our enemies, right? And, and serving and meekness and gentleness, and it's just not the way they want to do it. It's not the way the world works, right? So that's, that's the tension that we're dealing with in this week with these disciples. And when we read then Mark's version, which I'm going to read right now, you don't have to turn there, but Mark 1, verse 14, it starts with, now after John was imprisoned, Jesus went into Galilee and proclaimed the gospel of God. Now, really quick, if you notice, it says here John was imprisoned. But just earlier, John was the one who said, look, that's the Messiah. So th- th- that's what I'm saying. They have to be two different moments because they're not, they can't be at the same time because John here was just saying, look, there he is, and then John here is in prison. So that's what I'm saying. It's two different moments here. Um, and he pre- he's proclaiming the gospel. He said, the time, Jesus says, the time has been fulfilled. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the gospel. Now, John was basically saying the same thing, repent of your sins and be baptized. He was the forerunner of Jesus. He's getting people acclimated and ready for the teaching of Jesus. And then he hands over the baton, which means that his followers then follow the new rabbi, which is exactly what we see happen uh, in John when the two disciples just immediately followed him. It says, he went along the Sea of Galilee. He saw Simon and Andrew, Simon's brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will turn you into fishers of people. And this is what we read. They left their nets immediately and followed him. Then he went a little farther. He saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who John is, who's writing John. And they, uh, they were mending their nets. Immediately he called them, and they just left their dad in the hired help and followed Jesus. Poor, I feel bad for Zebedee. Just like on a normal day of fishing, his sons are just like, we're out, dad. Sorry. Good luck with the business. Uh, but that's the story we typically read. Now, like I said, I really think that they had some time to process this. And the understanding of being an apostle is a lot more clear than a disciple. What I mean by that is Jesus, when he would go city to city, town to town, and travel, he would take the 12 with him, and those were the very close-knit disciples. But there was a larger group of disciples that were with him. And so the 12 get a kind of exclusive you know, access to him. They're kind of like the backstage pass a little bit. Um, and they get more interaction with him and intimacy and all that kind of stuff. And he's doing that because what he's trying to do is he's trying to redeem and draw upon the nation of Israel who had failed. And the nation of Israel was given to 12 tribes, 12 men that led these tribes. They fought bicker, didn't go well. Jesus takes 12 men, and he's restoring this idea of the house of Israel to the people. And so he, he symbolically, but also literally, you know, symbol, he takes 12 men. But then there's all tons of disciples. There's women throughout that are disciples that are following him. And so when you think about Jesus and you think about his traveling, you can't think about him with just 12 other guys. There's at least dozens, if not hundreds at certain times, following him wherever he's going. They just might not be right up beside him in conversation. It's kind of like when Forrest Gump tries to run across or run across, you know, the U.S. and just, and then he starts like this, like just massive group behind him. It's kind of like that. And so Jesus had a pretty big entourage. It was a pretty big deal. But in this moment, they've, I, I think that G- Simon and, and Andrew and all of them will read their initial moments of Jesus. They've had some time to process through. Do we want to like follow this guy? Do we want to leave our rabbi we have now and follow this rabbi and potentially go wherever he'll take us, which could be anywhere, right? Some of us are married, have kids. Are we willing to leave that for the sake of this calling? And so this is where we get into verse 40. I'm going to skip 38, 39. I'll get back to that. But Andrew, the brother of Simon Peter, was one of the two disciples who heard what John the Baptist said and followed Jesus. 
Now, what's funny here is it says one of two disciples. If you notice, you're like, why would John not just tell us who the other disciple is? It's probably because it's him, and he doesn't want to, like, drop his name uh, like he so often does. Because we can do a deduction here from the other accounts and be like, that has to be John. So, most likely, Andrew and John are following John the Baptist. He says, look, this Lamb of God. They follow then Jesus. And... Uh, Andrew goes then to his own brother, Simon, and tells him, we've found the Messiah, which is translated Christ, meaning, hey, we think this is it. Like, John the Baptist believes this is it. We've followed him. Now we're following Jesus. And uh, Jesus, they brought, uh, Andrew brought Simon to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, the son of John. You will be called Cephas, which is translated Peter, and that's why we typically call him Simon Peter. And we are sitting in these chairs today because of Peter. He is the the father of the, the early church. He is the rock on which the church was built. And uh, we, can, we can thank him, even though we read about a lot of his uh, mishaps and uh, pride and quick thinking that is not usually rational, but very emotional. Um, but he, he pans out towards the end. And uh, that's, that's who Jesus starts to interact with. The next day, Jesus goes out. He wants to set out for Galilee. He wants to leave a little bit of where they're at. He finds Philip, and he says to Philip, follow me. In John, this is the only direct time he without even, like, just is like, hey, follow me. Now, Philip was from that side of the town of Andrew and Peter, and uh, Philip is kind of fun for me. I think he's an encouraging little character in the story because he's got a couple cameos later in the, in the story, and uh, he's, he's kind of a bum. He doesn't take a lot of initiative. Uh, he's pretty uh, anxious. I like to think of him as, like, the, the, like the gamer in the parents' basement at mid-20s, and, like, Jesus comes down. He's like, hey, quit playing Call of Duty. Like, come follow me. Let's do this. A little bit of, like, tough love. Like, buck up, let's go. And he does it. And so what's encouraging for me is, like, Jesus will call all of us, regardless of how impressive we are, how motivated we are, how achieving we are, uh, how got it together we have. Like, Jesus gives all of us the invitation. And you know what? Philip accepts it, and he's not the most stellar disciple, but that's okay. Jesus wanted him and chose him and met with him. And Jesus was one of the most direct with him, which I think is really encouraging and cool. So then, but then Philip finds Nathaniel, who Nathaniel arguably could be Bartholomew, which is another name in the book of Luke. I know you're like, why is that? Because there's Hebrew names, then we Greek translate, then we English translate. There's a lot of different names that are going on. And so uh, Nathaniel could be Bartholomew, one of the 12, or he could be just another disciple that just follows from the wayside. Uh, but he brings Nathaniel, he tells him, we have found the one Moses wrote about in the law, and all the prophets who wrote about Jesus of Nazareth, son of of Joseph. Now, Nathaniel, who knows his Bible, replies, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Uh, Philip replied, come and see. Now, if you, if you know the story of um, the Christmas story, Jesus is born in a, a little town of Bethlehem. Good. Okay. So, Christmas songs. Too early. i got to cut that out. That was the, oh, it's too early. Um, born in Bethlehem, right? But then he's like, Jesus of Nazareth. And this confused a lot of the religious leaders because they knew him to have to come out of Bethlehem. However, he was born in Bethlehem, right? And then the king at the time was like, I don't want this guy. He might take me over even though he's an infant. So he kills all the babies in that area. They flee to Egypt overnight and barely miss it. And then they live in Egypt for a while, and then they settle in Nazareth. So Jesus is born in Bethlehem, raised in Nazareth. Now, um, Nathaniel's kind of being a jerk here. And he's like, nothing good comes out of Nazareth. I mean, that'd be like saying, I don't want to like diss on a, if you like live in a small farm town in Ohio and you're like really proud of it, I don't, Ann Arbor, how about that? You'd be like, nothing good will come out of Ann Arbor, right? That's good, yeah. 
And that's like that's like the sentiment is like Nazareth is a dump. Like you're not like no way, right? And and he's skeptical. But then in verse 47, Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him, and he exclaimed, "Look, a true Israelite in whom there is no deceit." Nathanael asked him, "How do you know me?" Jesus replied, "Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you." Nathanael answered him, "Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel." Now, if you read this, and maybe you have read this, like, super confusing. You're like, why is Nathaniel all of a sudden just, he's like skeptical, and then he's like, oh my gosh, you are the God, you are it. Because he's under a fig tree, like there's a lot of fig trees in this, in this Mediterranean, or not Mediterranean, but this, in this region, right? There's a lot of fig trees. So what's going on here? Most scholars would say that the fig tree is symbolic. It's, it's actually sort of like a phrase you would use to describe your, basically your quiet time, your like prayer life, um, your moments with God. And so you'd say, I was under the, so hypothetically you could say like you're praying in your house. Like, sorry, sorry one sec, I'm under the fig tree is what you could say. Now, we don't do that because that's silly, but that's, that was a lot of language they would use. And the reason why that's very strongly what it probably means to be is because of Nathaniel's massive response. Like, oh my gosh, this is insane. Now, the reason why we think it's insane, or he, the reason why he responds insanely is because there's this idea that basically Jesus is saying, hey, I know your name, which is cool, but also I knew the time you had with the Lord earlier. I knew you were praying to God, and I was there with you, and I saw you. Now, I think that's a fair baseline, I don't want to. I don't want to over spiritualize the, the reality of it, but it's possible that maybe he even like was hearing from the Lord, like one's coming to meet you or something like that. And so when the Jesus is like, "I was there with you, and I, I see you now," it like all clicked for him. That's not, you know, don't don't park that as law, but uh, that's possible. You know, moments like uh, Paul when Paul was blinded in the Book of Acts, then he goes to this house, and then God takes another guy to then heal him of his blindness, right, to help him see. It's kind of these two things coming together, and when they come together, then Paul's like, oh my gosh, right? It could be similar. Maybe he had this revelation in his quiet time or whatever. Regardless, Jesus is saying, hey, I was there, and I'm meeting you where you're at. And so it's a really cool story of just Jesus meeting people where they're at. Now, when we look at this, it, it feels like almost just sort of like disorganized, like we read the stories and we're like, there's just like a little, a little story here about Nathaniel, a story here about Philip, a story about, like they just seem very hodgepodge, but this is sort of the nature of what's going on. Jesus is going into this bigger town and region. He's starting to preach the good news and, and, and people are starting to basically fact check him, like is this really what the Messiah would do, is what he would say. And then these people start having moments and glimpses with him. And these followers who followed John, and some of them, like I said, were potentially cousins and family of Jesus, are like, do we follow this guy? Do we trust him? Is this really what we're meant to do? And that leads us then to Mark, where they're like willing to drop their nets for this guy. They're willing to say, you know what? I've had a little bit of time. He's it. I'm dropping my nets. I believe that this is the Messiah, the one at whom I'm going to follow. And they got an insane amount of knowledge, so you got to respect the fact that they're, they're not just going to follow anyone. So if we just summarize this uh, kind of outline, I know it's a lot. If you're taking notes and you like to have like a nice outline. John 1, it looks like this. Verses 19 through 28, John the Baptist talks. We, we skipped this part teaching, but Hannah read it. He talks to the religious leaders and talks about his meaning for what he's doing. Then verse 29 and 37, John hands off his followers and hands the baton to Jesus. And then I'm going to talk about verse 38, 39 a little bit. Uh, verse 40 through 42, Jesus gets Andrew and Peter and probably John. Uh, verse 43 through 46, Jesus asks Philip, I call him Philip the Average, uh, to follow him. 
Uh, and, uh, and then verse 47 to 51, Jesus reveals this personal knowledge and love to Nathaniel. And I, I love how at the end he's like, he's like, I told you I saw you under the fig tree and you believe. He's like, he's like, that ain't nothing. Like, you just wait. That's my paraphrase. But he's basically like, you'll see greater things than these. Like, this is nothing, Nathaniel. I tell you all the solemn truth. You'll see heaven opened, angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. And so he's just getting him so pumped um, for what's to come. But I want to turn to the last two verses and park here for the rest of our time. Verse 38 and 39. I think verse 38 and 39, as we know in John, John is incredibly purposeful with every word and detail and location of his writings. And I don't think that these two verses just are just here for any reason, and I don't think they're just applying to the disciples, but I think they actually have an internal uh, heart check for us personally. And so I want to read, read uh, verse 38. Before this, John Baptist had just said, there's the Lamb of God, the two disciples, which we probably assume are John and then Andrew, we know, follow him. And as they're following Jesus, Jesus turns around and he saw them following and he said to them, what do you want? Some translations might say, what are you seeking? What are you seeking? Which, at a very baseline level, <laughs> if you were walking from here to, uh, I don't know, to go eat at Barrio and someone was just following you down the sidewalk, you might be like, hey, what do you want? Like, it's a little creepy that you're following me, right? Like, do you need, do you need something? So there's a baseline level of them following their rabbi, and whenever you would decide to yoke up with a rabbi, you would walk literally behind them in their steps. It was like a way of respect and obviously emulating the physical reality of walking behind them as, felt, as well as their teaching. And so there's a good chance that Jesus is like, okay, these guys are following me now, and he turns around and says, what are you seeking? I love this question because I think this is the crux of our entire moment today, is, is asking ourselves, what are we seeking? I actually thought about bringing up a whiteboard and like starting with a very baseline, um, what we're seeking, like brunch. Some of you are like, I just really want to eat brunch right now, right? <laughs> like my stomach is hungry, and all the blackberries were gone this morning, right? Um, but some of you are like, man, I'm just seeking for some peace. My parents are fighting, getting divorced, or my relationship is really hard, or I struggle with just like anxiety all the time, and everyone else around me just keeps working out, and I don't even want to get out of bed, and I'm aggravated at myself for it. What are you seeking has very deep roots pretty quickly. If you really started to, to narrow it down, and so some of us are coming here seeking today um, a moment of refuge from the busyness of our lives. Some of you are seeking here today, hopefully just a little bit of encouragement from the gospel of Jesus. Some of you are here seeking a checkbox. So you'd feel a little bit better this week being like, well, I did go to church, so I can do whatever I want now. <laughs> Some of us are not even knowing what we're seeking. That's why you're here. You're like, I got no idea. I just showed up. The coffee's good. Let's do it, right? But what are we seeking is a question that we ask ourselves when we decide if we're going to follow this guy or not, but it's also a question we ask ourselves every day. Because if you, if you know anything about a journey, a journey is very easy to have a target and then to deviate, to try to take a different path, to be distracted or even um, tempted to go off course, right? Following Jesus is, is like, yeah, there's this commitment initially, but at the end of the day, we have no idea what we're getting into the first time we made the commitment. And then these, these moments are put in front of us of giant, just like directional shifts that Jesus is, is, is holding our hand and saying, hey, I'm coming this way. And then you have to continue to remind yourself, what am I seeking? Is this like... I don't know if I can do this. Because when everything is going well, it's not too bad to just be like, okay, me and Jesus hand in hand, this is great. But then something, Jesus calls you into this crazy life shift, right? Or you're being thrown into some really hard moments or some bumps in life or some 
tragedies, relational struggles, and then you really have to ask, like, I don't know if I want to go this way. Like, can we just kind of turn back over here, Jesus? This would be a much better route. And so we have to ask ourselves, do you, is what we're seeking really Jesus? Is what we're seeking really trusting in him and walking in his way? That's John's first words of Jesus in his gospel, is what, what are you seeking? The last words of Jesus in his gospel are, do you love me? So if you want to solve the entire narrative of Jesus and his journey of discipleship, the first question you ask yourself is, what am I seeking? Am I seeking relational fulfillment with someone else, romantic, like romantic feelings and sex and all these type of things? Am I seeking money, job, impressiveness for my family, friends, people around me? Am I seeking to just like numb myself so I don't have to deal with hardship, right? What am I seeking after? And once you start to realize those things are not going to work, they just aren't. Maybe you're still in that space where you think they, they are. Or maybe you're just kind of injecting parts of Jesus into it, thinking, like, this will be fine, right? But when you're able to get to the point where what I'm seeking is meaningless in light of the creator who's created me for a purpose, then the journey then continues, do you love me every day? Jesus does not at the end say, did you hear everything I said? Did you, did you memorize it all? Did you do all these things right? Do you love me? Our measurement of spiritual maturity is based on our, it's just simple, but also very hard, our love for Jesus. Do we love him? Do we want to be in his presence? Do we want to abide in his love? Richard Mahoney writes a great book on spiritual formation. He says, the most profound yearning of the human spirit, which we try to fill with all sorts of inadequate substitutes, is the yearning for our completeness in the image of, God, of Christ. Dallas Lord says, those who are not genuinely convinced that the only real bargain in life is surrendering ourselves to Jesus and to his cause, abandoning all that we love to him and from him, cannot learn the other lessons Jesus has to teach us. So you're checking out Jesus today, or maybe you've been following him for a while, asking yourself, what am I seeking? So Jesus says, what do you want? Their response, they say, they say to him, Rabbi, which is translated teacher, now that's a, that's a form of respect, basically saying, hey, we're... We're trusting John the Baptist. We're, we're, we're untying ourselves from him, and then we're going to get behind this, this Jesus, his rabbi. Them saying that is a, is a sign of endearment and respect, like we're our new rabbi. Rabbi, where are you staying? Now, I don't think, like I said, this is as simple as like, hey, man, like you got a hotel? Like, you, you, like where are you going? Like, what's going on? I think they want to have a long conversation with him. They're like, can we just go where you are? We want to be where you're at. Uh, I don't think it's as simple as just, hey, are you going to be all right here? Are you going to find a place to stay? It's we want to go wherever you're going, and we want to spend time with you. I'm sure they got questions, right? Following John the Baptist, now this new rabbi they're supposed to give their life to. He's the fulfillment of what John had done. Hey, we got some questions. And it says, uh, Jesus answers them, come, and you'll see. Come, and you'll see. He doesn't say, oh, I'm, you know, I'm staying at the Marriott. Like, come on out. Like, right? He's like, come under my teaching, and you will see, and you will find. So they came and they saw where he was literally staying, and then what did they do? They stay with him that day. Now, day is confusing because the days in their calendar were different than ours. They're flipped sunset to sunrise. Basically, they had a slumber party. <laughs> and uh, they had just stayed up all night talking probably theology and prophecies and check, vetting this guy, right? It's funny because I was always taught, you know, if you watch High Met Your Mother, which is an older show, but they had an episode that was nothing, bad, nothing good ever happens after 2 a.m., I think this is, uh, this is saying that's not true. Great things can happen after 2 a.m. I wouldn't say statistically they do. Usually more bad things happen than good things, but you know what? Give it a shot, right? Uh, there is one other good thing that I'll show, reveal later that happens after 2 a.m. that's good. But uh, for you night owls, I just want you to feel seen and loved today <laughs> and know that 
I can't get up early, but man, I feel real spiritual at 2 a.m. <laughs> and there's never anything good on TV, so maybe it's good to just pray it, pray it out at 2 a.m. So he says, come and see. Jesus' invitation is to evaluate uh, what I would call our telos, which is basically our end, our core meaning, our purpose in life. Our purpose is not just happiness. It is to be image bearers of the true image, Christ. I love, uh, I I quoted this last week by a guy named uh, Count Nicholas Zinzendorf, and he coins the quote, preach the gospel, die, and be forgotten, which is a pretty intense statement. And, uh, but I, I think it's actually the most true statement. It's humbling, but it's also simplifying because Jesus' call is not anything, um, it's not anything like incredibly difficult in terms of understanding and nuance. It's just surrendering, which is simple and really hard. He's not asking you to go to nine years of seminary. He's not asking you to start a new nonprofit that raises millions so you can alleviate like hunger in Africa. He's asking you, do you love me with all your being and are you willing to walk in that? And Count Nicholas Zinzendorf is a cool story. So he was uh, 27 years old when he took a, um, a refugee from Moravia. Moravia was going through a war at this time. He's in Germany. He took a Moravian refugee. This is in the 1700s. And, uh, and took him in back to his estate. He, he was inherited some money, and he had a pretty big estate. Took him back and cared for them. Uh, before long, he had brought up to 300 Moravian refugees back to his estate and became basically their pastor. And they lived in this small village called Hernhut, Germany, uh, which is basically like his estate turned into like this little village, which is really cool. He basically just like, he, instead of planting a church and them coming, he basically was like, hey, you should come here and be safe. And then they made sort of a community out of it. All they did was really simple, just prayed together, studied God's word, and grew spiritually together. Then on August 12th, 1727, they conducted an all-night prayer meeting, which is like I said, this is another good thing. Happened late at night. Come on, guys. Like, let's just do it, right? Let's have an all-night prayer meeting. That'd be awesome. Uh, and, in fact, Jesus would do oftentimes pray late at night. Paul would do night watches. Sorry, tangent. Anyways, they pray all night. This prayer vigil leads to this deep yearning for continuing to pray and to be in presence with Jesus, right? And so from that prayer vigil, then they started design- they designated a place of prayer in this little village, like a prayer room, basically. And they prayed in groups of two or three for one-hour increments at a time from this prayer vigil. So this, like, you know, I don't know, eight-hour prayer vigil... You know, and guess how long it lasted? 110 years. It's a long time. These, these 300 people gather in this super humble prayer night, and they have this deep yearning for the presence of God to just, just be present with him. And 110 years straight, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, there was two or three people in this prayer room praying, which is crazy that, like, some grandma, like, handed this over to her grandchild. I mean, that's just, that's longer than anyone's life, 110 years. I mean, that's remarkable. And now, not only is this revival of this, this community impactful, and I would say this is, the, this is by far the greatest revival, I think, in history, um, it actually led to the largest missional movement in the world ever. So as they're praying day after day after day, they start to get this deep burden for the things of God. It's funny how that works, right? The more you pray, the more you just want the things of God. And they started to feel like, man, the gospel just needs to extend the rest of the world. And so they started sending out people all over to basically plant churches. Um, but what they did was they didn't want to have this, like, denominational thing. And so they planted churches and sort of let it just seep into the cracks of the context, and then whatever happened, you know, happened with whatever denomination. Uh, however, if, if they tracked it, if they were to 
be a denomination. Every time they plant a church, that church plants a church, whatever. Uh, if they were to be a denomination, they would be the largest denomination in the world right now. Just think about that. Larger than Southern Baptist, larger than Assembly of God. They would be the largest church presence denomination in the world because of 300 people who had this continual heart to, be in, 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 to stay the night with Jesus, right? Over and over and over and over again. And I just think about that as so encouraging and, and just a passion for us. Of Jesus is not calling you to go do these massive things. He's calling you just to come and see, right? To just come and be in his presence, to come and ask questions, to come and bring your doubts, probably to slow down. You've got to cancel your plans that night and just sit in his presence. And so each of us, as we close out, I just want us to reflect on these, these three questions that I think he asks. The first one is, what do we want? What are we seeking? The second one is, do we love Jesus? And the third one is, will we come and see what Jesus has for you? Now, I think that's a very overarching statement, what does Jesus have for me? But I think one great way to practice it right now during our time of formation is to just listen, to just pray and ask what the Lord has for you. Ask that the Spirit would illuminate maybe areas of your life that you need to evaluate, maybe a relationship that you need to fight a little harder to mend, maybe something that you need to just recover from and, 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 and cancel out of your life. So I just, what are you seeking? Do you love Jesus? And will you come and see what Jesus has for you? Thank you for listening to the Contrast Church Podcast. To learn more about us and how you can be a part of it, visit contrast.church.